Two weeks ago, our message began with the story of the three little pigs who went out to seek their fortunes. And each little pig had built his life out of different materials. And when the big bad wolf showed up, they found out just how durable their building materials were or were not. The message was about God's building program. The church as God's building and our lives as microcosms or part of that building. We began with the foundation. We looked at faulty foundations and we looked at the true foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Then we looked at building materials. Each of us build on this foundation of Jesus Christ with some kind of material. Some build their lives with things that are durable or some with perishable with precious or worthless things, or useful or useless, with temporal or eternal things. And all of our buildings, all of our lives, are someday going to be tested by fire. And what's left over after the fire is our reward. We're saved by grace, but we're rewarded according to what we've built our lives with, what we've done. We emphasize the importance of every individual in the building of God, his church, or the body of Christ. The fact that every one of us are critical parts of the body of Christ. We talked about the fact that we have body parts wandering around. And I hope we take seriously the implications of being wandering body parts, not connecting to a local church. Maybe an unhealthy, it's unhealthy for the body part and it's unhealthy for the, for the church. Jesus takes his body, the church, very seriously. And today, Paul, the apostle, gives us reasons that God takes it so seriously. And he makes probably the strongest statement in the entire Bible regarding divisions or divisiveness in the church of Jesus Christ. He's going to give us some tough words today, and I, I hope you're ready for that. Today, we're going to look at God lives here. God lives here. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, it's on page 925 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. And we're going to read six, verses 16 through 23. It'll also be on the projection in front of you. 1 Corinthians 3, starting with 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This passage has three primary sections, the verse 16, verse 17, and then verses 18 to 23. And I want us to start by unpacking verse 16 with the definition of the church, Roman numero one, the definition of the, uh, of the church. There are four statements of fact that Paul gives us. He starts by saying, you yourselves are God's temple. He says, you yourselves are God's temple. Now this was, this was a very radical statement given to first century Christianity. Christians 
This was introduced, Christianity was introduced in the context of Judaism. In the Old Testament, Judaism was the, one of the main themes or focuses was God's presence with his people. We have the Exodus event, which is God's presence in the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, he received those Ten Commandments in, directly in God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant was constructed, demonstrating God's presence, and it was kept in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, and that is where God lived. His presence was local in the temple where people of God met with him. Solomon, however, was well aware that the temple couldn't contain God's presence. In his prayer at the dedication of the completed temple, he said, and this is on the, on the projection, 2 Chronicles 6.18 says, but will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Well, after Jesus died and was buried and resurrected and ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to live, not in buildings, but in people. He sent the Holy Spirit to live in people. Ezekiel talked about this in Ezekiel 11.9. He said, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And then in Joel 2.28-29, he says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then on... On the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes Joel 2 when the Holy Spirit came down in power and he says, this what, what, what he was talking about in Joel, this is what you just experienced and observed. This is what he's talking about. Basically, he says, God lives here. He says, you yourselves are God's temple. You yourselves are God. Now, what makes us a temple of God? Letter B, God's spirit lives in you. God's spirit lives in you. Now, there's a Greek word, este, which is, I know those of you that love grammar are gonna love this, otherwise just, it'll go over your head. That's okay, we're good. It's a present indicative second person plural of I, me, or I am, and the translation is you all. It's plural, which means in, in Southern, y'all, okay? Now, there's God's spirit lives in y'all, okay? All of you. You is plural. We don't have plural you in English unless you live down south, but it's in you, it's plural. So God's spirit lives in you all. It lives, when he's talking to the church, he says that God's spirit lives in you all, the church at Corinth. You all are the temple of God. And it's a temple, not the temple, but a temple. And what makes this group in Corinth and what makes us God's temple? The spirit of God dwells in you all. Again, it's in the second person plural, and it refers to the church as a whole, not individual parts. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we'll get there in several weeks, the word temple, it says you are a temple, is singular, and that talks about the individual being a temple. So it's both we as individuals are a temple, and collectively as a group, we are a temple of God. Okay, everybody get that? Okay, here it's plural. Now, these two verses, 16 and 17 have been greatly misinterpreted throughout history. Uh, verse 17 does not have to do primarily with suicide or self-destruction. That was something uh, a lot of us grew up thinking that this had to do with suicide or self-destruction. Manfred Brauch 
wrote a book, Hard Sayings of Paul, and he writes this. He said, the most pervasive and common understanding of our text holds that Paul is here talking about our individual bodies as temples or dwellings of God's spirit. And if we destroy these temples through the way we live, for example, through sexual impurity or by what we put into our bodies, like with alcohol, drugs, tobacco, or gluttony, or by what we do to them, for example, suicide, we become objects of God's final destructive judgment. But Paul's Greek is more nuanced there, and it shows that he's not thinking of individual Christians here as temples inhabited by God, but of the church, the fellowship of believers in Corinth, among whom the Spirit of God dwells and is operative. What makes the church a temple in Corinth? The Spirit of God has taken up residence there. What makes E.C. Wesleyan a temple of God? God lives here. God lives here. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in our lives individually and collectively. And he's talking about the collective sense in this passage. It's not in this physical building. We came to church, we think about it that way. It's not about this physical structure. It's about this physical building, our physical bodies. Temple literally means the sanctuary, the holy place, the most holy place of God. So God lives here, okay? Very important that we understand that God lives here. The third phrase says, God's temple is sacred, letter C, which means it's holy, it's, it's set apart. In other words, it's reserved for God's use. We talked about holiness and being sanctified earlier in 1 Corinthians and talked about the fact that just like you reserve a table, you reserve a rent a car, you reserve a room or whatever, that's for you, for your purposes. And we, the temple, individually and corporately, we are reserved for God's purposes exclusively. For God's purpose exclusively. And not just on Sundays when we gather together, but daily, every one of us, we are indwelt by the spirit of the living God to be holy. We're reserved for God's purposes. Gordon Fee writes, this is one of the few texts in the New Testament where we're exposed both to an understanding of the nature of the local church, God's temple indwelt by a spirit, and where a warning of verse 17 makes it clear how important the church is to God himself. You know, we, we sometimes have no concept of how important, the, the high level of importance God has placed on the local church collectively. Protestant circles tend to take the local parish too lightly. The spirit of God lives in your midst is what Paul says. And he's talking about this corporate gathering in Jesus' name. And he says the spirit is the key. And the presence of the spirit alone, that's the only thing that marks us out as God's new people in his temple in Corinth. Barclay writes, to Paul, the church was the very temple of God because it was the society in which the Spirit of God dwelt. Very important that we understand the importance of that. In letter D, he says, then he says, you are that temple. You are that temple. The church is a temple of God because it is the society in which the Spirit of God lives. His presence makes us sacred. So the local church, our local church is a place of God, not just while we're in this building. And this is where it gets a little confusing. Is it just happened when we're in this building? No, because we are the church in dispersion most of the week. We're to, we come together 
on Sundays and other times, where the church in dispersion during the week were gathered and then were scattered. And this concept of being the church of the temple of God includes the smallest unit of the church. It includes family. It includes family. And as you gather around your table for dinner, your family is a temple, the dwelling place of God. As you gather for a prayer meeting with two or three, there his presence is in the midst. You are a temple. As you gather in your connect group or your discipleship class, your worship or music rehearsal, church service, you are a temple, a place where God dwells. Dwells talks about that the whole connotation of dwells is a permanent residence. It's not to visit, okay, we visit, but this is dwelling means living in, living in. So you can put a sign on the door at your house, God lives here, okay? Say Kilroy was here, no, we're gonna put God lives here. God lives here. In the Old Testament, God dwelt only in a temple amongst the Jews. It was a localized presence. In the New Testament, God dwells in us individually and is in our presence as the body of Christ. And he says the temple of God is sacred and that is what you are. It's not, not of ourselves. It's not that we somehow earn this great place. But because the Spirit of God has chosen to reside in us, you are sacred, you are valuable to God. You are that temple, you all. Now, once we grasp that fact, it's very important that we understand the importance of the temple, a temple, the temple of God. Then we receive a very strong warning. Very strong warning. Let's look at Roman numeral two, the destruction of the temple. Destruction of the temple. Verse 17 says this, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Again, you all are that temple. Destroy means to corrupt or to deprave or destroy. It means to wreck the temple or it means to wreck the church. It means to wreck the church. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says this, it is not the building or the house of which Paul speaks as the sanctuary of God, but the spiritual organization or organism of God's people in whom God dwells. Manfred Brauch says to destroy the church, this temple of God, is to destroy God's alternative to the brokenness of human society. The church is God's alternative. It's the answer to the issues that we face in our world today. And to destroy that is to destroy what God has, has set out to be the answer to all the problems in our world today. It's to make it impossible for God's redemptive presence and work through his temple in Corinth to redeem Corinthian society. Paul addresses this issue in light of the fact that certain persons are actually, and we find this, this is why he wrote 1 Corinthians, certain persons were destroying the temple of God. This was not written in a vacuum. This was written in, in the real world of the, of the church in Corinth, in the city in Corinth. How? So how were people then and how are people today destroying the church? How are people destroying it? Number one, causing divisions. And we've touched on this at different parts. Number one is causing divisions. Now, there are a million ways to cause division in a church. James 3.16 says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every 
evil practice. As we go further into 1 Corinthians, we're going to discover in chapters 12, 13, and 14 that the hallmark of the church is love. Okay? Everything, everything is described as, as love. And a church can have all the programs, they can have all the spiritual gifts, the faith, and service to the poor and needy, but without love, all our activity is worthless. Worthless. And divisions destroy love. Divisions destroy, absolutely decimate love. James is describing a people who have their own selfish agendas, they are jealous, they are envious, people who want their own way, and it's all at the expense of unity, or as we've talked about, agenda harmony. Very, very important that we have agenda harmony expressed in love. Now, one of the most pervasive and destructive forces in the church, and I've, I've addressed this every once in a while, and it's not because I'm aware of anything that's happening now, so don't get defensive, okay? But is something called gossip. Gossip. One of the most destructive forces in the church. And I have, I'll admit, I've been accused at times of insensitivity, even harshness, when I deal with divisiveness or divisive people in the church. If there's any sense of divisiveness in a church, I will confront it. I will deal with it. Why? Because divisiveness is a very, very serious sin. I've told you about Jim Simbola, who is the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. Wrote Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. His wife directs the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Uh, an incredible church, a godly church. He said this, and I'm going to paraphrase the essence of what he said. He said, if you are a drug addict, we will welcome you with open arms. We will receive you, pray for your deliverance. If you are a prostitute, we will love you and support you and reach out and we will help you. If you are a, a homosexual, we will declare God's forgiveness to you if you repent. If you are an ex-con, if you are a murderer, an adulterer, we will openly embrace you and declare God's grace and forgiveness. But if you are a gossip causing division in this church, we will hunt you down, confront your sin, and throw you out of the church. Why would this kind, loving man of God say such a thing? Because he has the heart of God and recognizes the grave nature of gossip that results in division, that destroys the temple, the church of Jesus Christ. He doesn't mince words. If you look at our value statements, we're looking at we're posting one of them a month in our program. Statement number seven that we have, and you can see this on our website. If you haven't looked at it, look at, do it again. I'm going to read it. Value statement seven on our website is loyalty to the absent. Loyalty to the absent. And it reads, as followers of Jesus Christ living his mandate to first love God and then to love others as ourselves, we express that love by refraining from gossip pledging to speak to others directly and speak well of or not speak at all. We will stop gossip at both our own mouth and ears by calling others into account to stop. Now, why is gossip so serious? 
because the church is God's solution to society's problems. Where would our nation be without the church that confronted the evils of slavery in the, 19, in the 1850s? Where would our world be if the church had not confronted the evils of Nazi Germany? Where would our nation be if the church had not confronted racism in the 1960s civil rights movement? Where would our nation be if the church had not confronted and rolled back the evil holocaust of abortion on demand? The church, imperfect as it is, it's not perfect, as imperfect as it is, is God's instrument to redeem broken people to confront sin and to bring healing. You are critical to that mission. The church is you. So how to destroy the church? Causing divisions, that's the most common one. Number two would be following their favorite doctrine. Emphasizing one doctrine is the most important. There's no balance in polarizing the church into one doctrine or the other. Number three would be elevating their spiritual gift as, as most important. Elevating their spiritual gift is most important. That's like saying, the lungs are more important than the heart. Let's vote, okay. Who says the lungs are more important? Uh, yeah. Or the brain is better than the pancreas. Or the stomach is more important than the liver. Or the eyes are more important than the ears. Or the nose is more important than the mouth. And you go on and on. You get the picture. It's not teamwork. It's competition and comparison. So, so we're saying my, my role or my spiritual gifts are more important than everybody else's. And, and so, no, everybody it's important, but, but if we cause comparisons, we've got competition. What happens when a basketball team competes against itself? I've seen, I've seen that happen where every player tries to score more points than their teammate. Okay, they're in a point scoring competition, and what happens, they, probably they're gonna lose. Probably gonna lose, because they're not working as a team. Number four, following their favorite leader. Following, we had this, they, were, they said, I'm, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I do this. You know, all these people, we tend to follow our favorite leader in this, in this society, this culture of the pedestal. And following our favorite leader can divide and destroy a church and the church at large. Just two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, Pastor Bill Hybels resigned before he was preparing to retire in October, the Willow Creek Community Church. He's dealing with accusations of sexual misconduct, a travesty. Now, we're always to believe the best. It's not our job to judge. But it's the latest example of a prominent, world-renowned church leader who is in trouble, who's in trouble. The question is, are we following a human leader or are we following Jesus Christ? Are we following a human leader or Jesus Christ? Bill Hybels has had an incredible impact on our ministry, my ministry, just helping understand a lot of things. We've looked at his material. There's a, he had so much to offer. And we're not sure where that's all gonna end, but we're not following Bill Hybels. We're following Jesus Christ. So no matter what leader out there has, has fallen, or no matter who your favorite leader or favorite preacher we follow Jesus, not that leader. That can cause division. Number five is living by the wisdom of the world. Living by the wisdom of the world. We unpacked this more extensively a couple weeks ago. We saw how Paul described the wisdom of the world as foolishness and how we're enamored with education. Education is the answer to every problem we face. It's the arrogance of academia. 
And, and we see it all over the, case, all over the place. First Corinthians 3, 18 to 21, he says, do not deceive yourself. If any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about men. We looked at humanism, that we are the beginning all end of everything. Rationalism, we can reason everything. It reasons, explains everything. Syncretism, which is combining different parts of many religions and making up your own. It's a grab bag approach and say, I like this, I like that. So I'm gonna make up my own religion. People who say, well, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual, okay? We saw all of that. The wisdom of the world, the world's thinking is foolishness and all of that, as it infiltrates the church, that can divide a church. How do we destroy God's temple? Number six, living in sin, living in sin. Since we are all part of one body, we're interconnected, just like our physical parts. And what we do or what we do not do affects everybody because we don't live in isolation. Some people say, you know, that's between me and God. No, it's between you and God and the body, the, the other people in the church. It's between all of us. We don't live in isolation. If we are in isolation, we're weak spiritually, we're unhealthy or diseased. And if we are, we will affect those around us with whom we are connected. What happens when your kidneys begin to malfunction? Poisons stay in our body and will die. What happens when the heart is diseased and weak and fails to, to pump properly? We, we suffer from congestive heart failure and the lungs begin to fill with fluid. Look at all the parts of the body function. Well, we, we have a disease, it's called sin. It's a sin. And the benefit of being in the body of the church is that others can connect to us so we can receive nourishment, strength, healing, and health. So we can receive that healing and health from others in the body, in the temple, in the church. And we can also give it as well as we give our parts of the body to help others and bring healing. God lives here. God lives here. You are his temple. How do we destroy God's temple? Number seven, failure to confront sin. Failure to confront sin. Just like ignoring sickness and disease in our physical bodies will eventually destroy them. So a failure to confront sin will destroy a church. Has to be confronted. Now, Health and wellness experts challenge us to stop destructive behaviors. Okay, we've all heard this, you know, stop smoking, don't overeat, don't eat unhealthy, don't take drugs, and, and there are all kinds of guidelines that we're given in order for us to, to live healthy. If we ignore the warnings and continue to allow destructive behavior, our physical bodies will eventually be destroyed. It happens. Now, we're all going to die someday. That's, that's given. But, you know, we can, we can destroy him prematurely if we have destructive behavior. So why must we confront sin in the church? If we don't, it will destroy the church. It will destroy the church. We must deal, deal with sin. That is why any in individual sin, if it's left undealt with, unconfessed, not repented of, continuing in a lifestyle of sin, it will corrupt and destroy God's temple, God's dwelling place, God's church. 
We all affect each other, hidden sin or not. It may be active rebellion, it could be passive indifference, it could be lukewarmness, it can be leaving our first love like in Revelation 2. But when we begin to understand how our sin affects the body of Christ, then we begin to take it much more seriously. Included in this is the family, the family unit. Our sins will affect our family. Causing divisions will affect our family. Dividing our family will destroy the smallest unit of the temple of God, which is the family, the family. That's why divorce among Christians is doubly, doubly destructive. Those of you who have experienced divorce can attest to the destruction it brings on a family and also the church because we're all interconnected. I don't know about you, I'm, I'm pretty protective of my physical body. When it's cold, I dress warmly. We bought new coats when we moved to Wisconsin. Down coats, then we bought thicker down coats. I mean, we had no idea. I, I, I'd forgotten what it's like in the Midwest. I, I lived in North Dakota for about 10 years, and I remember. So I just wore a parka from, you know, from about November to May. But not, not so bad here. But I'm protective. I wear a seatbelt when I drive. If, if I'm sick, I rest, I drink lots of fluids, I go to the doctor if it lasts longer than two hours. You know, I do those kinds of things. I, I have surgery if necessary. I practice preventive care, I have regular checkups. Whatever is necessary to preserve my body, and I hope most of you do the same thing. Well, if there's a physical threat, rather than prove a point, I'll usually, I'll usually run, okay? I, when I was younger, I was, you know, I, I, I remember one time I was, I was at, the, at a church alone, at church alone and, and this big guy, about six, four, 250 pounds, came to the church and he wanted something and we didn't have it. I said, I'm sorry, we don't have it. And, and he got angry. Nobody around, just me, man. I'm, you know, I'm 5'10". And so as I, and he got angry and as he walked out of the door in the church, I kind of walked with him to me. He got more angry when he saw that I was making sure he was leaving for sure. And I was looking around for all ways of escape. You know, I was not, I was not going to be a hero in this, in this case. Self-preservation, okay, taking care of that, in danger. God also takes great measures to protect his body, his temple, and that's us. Now, if one destroys God's temple, the second statement in verse 17 is, very strong statement, B, God will destroy him. God will destroy him. Paul doesn't say exactly what that means. He doesn't mean annihilation or loss of existence. But he's saying that destroying the church is so serious, we will certainly reap what we've sown. Manfred Brauch says their destruction, however, is not to be seen as an act of vindictive retribution, but rather as the inevitable result that comes to those who reject God's way. Of salvation. I've seen a lot in my 37 years of ministry. In light of what the Bible says, and I've observed, I would be scared to death to do what some people do. Some people do. If I do anything to cause division, to undermine unity, I would be terrified of the personal consequences. The church, with all its faults, and, and, and they are many because we're all humans, with all its faults, is God's answer to the problems of the world. We are the alternative to society's brokenness. God lives here. He lives here so that other people can come and meet him to experience his love, his forgiveness, his life-transforming power. We dare not interfere or inhibit that. 
because God lives here. Finally, the destiny of the church. Destiny of the church, verses 22 through 23, says whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So you have Paul, you have Apollos, you have Peter, the world, life or death, present or future. He says they, they're all yours. Why? Because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. We belong to Jesus. Everything begins and ends with the foundation of the church, which we have been looking at, which is Jesus Christ. You yourselves are God's temple. God's spirit lives in you. God's temple is sacred. You are that temple. Let's take very good care of this temple because God lives here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have elevated the church, not because of us, but because you live here. And I pray, God, that you would impress on us the importance of the stewardship of what you've given us, that we are stewards of the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of us and, and the Spirit of God in our presence in this local church. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to stay in unity and agenda harmony, that love would be the, the predominant motivation for everything we do. And God, that you would draw us into unity again and again and realize that we are the alternative to the brokenness around us. And I pray that you'll give us a sensitivity and an awareness that that's not just a brokenness on Sunday mornings that we may enhance, encounter, but all throughout the week as we are scattered all throughout this county. And pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a vision for how we can be that alternative. We can share that love in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?